Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I am happy to present the first episode of my Week of Wine and Roses, celebrating the new Broadway show, Days of Wine and Roses. Throughout the week, I'll be presenting interviews with the show's writers Adam Gettle and Craig Lucas, and the star of the show, Kelly O'Hara. Today, I'm happy to welcome Tony-winning composer and lyricist Adam Gettle, the third generation of the legendary Rogers musical family, whose thrilling body of work includes the Light in the Piazza, Floyd Collins, and Myths and Hymns, shows that have cemented his place as one of the foremost theater writers of this generation. He's also penned incidental music for To Kill a Mockingbird, and has worked as a teacher and private coach at many universities across America. And now, without further ado, here's Adam Gettle. Well, so I'd love to start us off again by asking you, um, how did you first become interested in theater, coming from a theatrical family, and of course? Well, I um, I got taken to... Um... I got taken to Oklahoma by my my mom when I was two. Um, I think it was a revival at Lincoln Center. Um, in the early days of Lincoln Center, when I think they were doing theater revivals at uh, the State Theater, um, which is where the New York City Ballet performs. And uh, I kept asking her what what when it was going to be over, and she finally said, "You you you hate it so much that you want to leave." And I said, Oh, I never want it to be over. I want it to go on forever. And, and I really immediately thought it was the most exciting sort of thing to be to be there. And I think when musicals are good, it, that's still the case for me. When it's when they're good, they're they're really good. Right. And how did your career as a young opera singer start? I'd always sung. In fact, right around that age, I started to, you know, sing a lot around the house. And, and and I loved the pop music of the time. Um, I think um, if it was '67 um, when I was two, the that song "Slow Down," you move too fast. You gotta make the morning last. Um, that was uh, I think Simon Garfunkel feeling groovy, and I, I I came home singing it. Maybe not quite as jazzily styled as my croaky voice. Uh, I've been sick, um, but. Uh, and uh, that was uh, a, a sort of a family story uh, that I just really loved to sing. And um, by the time I was about nine, well, I, I was singing in public a lot before um, I sang professionally. But I started at the City Opera um, um, as a soloist when I was 10. And uh, I just I did it until my voice changed. Uh, and, and it was something I just loved to do. It was also a beautiful way to grow up and to be around adults and to see how um, a show got put together when it was just disassembled on the first day and 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 ravishing on the last. Right. And how did you decide to transition from being a singer to being a composer and lyricist? Well, my voice was never um, robust enough um, or rangy enough in terms of its timbre. Um, um, I just... Uh, that wasn't one of my many blessings. I, I, I love to sing still. And I sang a lot in my earlier years, um, you know, made a lot of recordings and I love singing, but, um, I just uh, didn't see it as being a complete life for myself. Um, and, and, and not interesting enough to other people. I really wanted to contribute more. Um, and also writing for the theater is uh, probably the hardest thing that I know how to try to do. And, um, uh, and you know, you never get good at it. You just keep trying to get better. Uh, and that appealed to me and still appeals to me. 
And how did you decide where to study in terms of college and all that? Well, in those days, this is 40 years ago, 41 years ago, but uh, <laughs> I sort of relish saying that. It's just like, I love getting older. I think I'm going to love dying too. I mean, the whole thing is fun. Um, but uh, I, yeah, it was sort of thought that Yale was the school to go to, the school to go to if you were um, interested in theater. Um, and so, you know, I just applied. I only applied to three places, and and luckily I got into Yale. And um, and it wasn't, in fact, a, a, ter a terribly good theater school, not at the undergraduate level at all. I remember visiting a friend who had a show on. She was the lead in Top Girls or something at Brown, and I went to see her in it. And they had like a la just luxuriously outfitted black box with, you know, all, all the latest stuff and um, at Yale we were putting our dining room tables together and using those as the stage with a, a couple um stanchions of, of side lights and and god knows you know you know it was uh but you know that, that that's it's sort of things are not what make theater good it's 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 the people and the and the talent and the enthusiasm and so forth but I was just like Yale didn't really have itself together in those days um, as a as a theater school for undergraduates, but we all just plowed right ahead. I did I did scored several shows there. You know, under did the incidental music and stuff. Right. And what was some of the early original music you wrote like? Was it similar to the way that you write now? Or well, I think that if I think there ought to be, uh, or there's likely to be some some intrinsic uh, sort of uh, profile that continues in my work uh, and is is and it has been continuous from from then to now I did a score for Carol Churchill's cloud nine um, I did uh, a lot of documentary scores and documentaries for me were always um, um, a, a sort of paint box or a sandbox um, to just make things I wouldn't ordinarily make just to be told what to do by someone is great uh, you know to be to be told by a director this is what I think we need here you know watch this footage and see what comes to mind um, was um, a great thing and still is I, I like to do incidental music um, and score and, and score other people's visions um, a lot uh <clears throat> and i guess that continues to be useful to me my music is i hope in some ways the same you know and i, I guess i've accrued a certain amount of technical um skill um and it's it's a funny thing about technique whether you're a singer or a writer or maybe even a gymnast you know um the more you know how to do um safely in the case of a gymnast or a singer wisely in the case of a writer i suppose um the more you know how to do or you think you do you know the more you're willing to attempt that which you don't know how to do and i like to think that we do our best work at the edge of competence right and when you were starting out as a writer did you receive a lot of advice from your mom or from other that you knew at that time or did you sort of keep that separate well i'll just say i received plenty um, <laughs> <laughs> um which was the she was the best teacher i ever had um and uh you know always she was just an incredible um uh goader and opportuner or importuner and inveyor even around the sort of the fundaments, the the primary colors, the necessities of making making songs. Um, she really, she had a keen interest in my developing those disciplines or, or that discipline around delivering a melody that satisfies. Many would, of course, um, jump at the chance to say, I never write a melody, but in my own fashion after my own fashion i tried to and <laughs> that came from my mom um to be responsible and try to be 
interesting with Harmony. I don't think she ever said, you know, this is sort of the psychological ambience of 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 the song, of the world of the song, of of the world of the show. She didn't really get into that stuff. She just would say, "Oh, that's not very interesting." <laughs> <laughs> probably more direct and probably more effective than my fancy stuff. So, you know, she was really, really helpful, and and her. She was quite stern with me. I mean, she was, you'd call that a melody. That's what is that? That's just, you're just shadowing the chords. You know, you're, when the chords go up, you go up. The chords go down, you go down. That's not a melody. You know, the idea of counterpoint, just as a discipline, as a almost an ethos, you know, she's like, you, you can't live like that. <laughs> <laughs> and did you find that your influences mostly came from previous musical theater scores or from classical music? No, no, not really. Um, I mean, one can't ever really recite what's, what one's influences are because they come from everywhere, one hopes. But, um, um, yeah, I was a really big fan of um, certain writers uh, who were on the radio then, you know, uh, and just sort of the pop music idiom was very, very interesting to me just in terms of grooves and, and harmony, because in those days, pop music actually had... <laughs> harmony um and uh so there was stevie wonder and there was um you know there was like the jackson five there was earth wind and fire there was steely dan there was um you know um crosby stills nash and young and there was simon and garfunkel and there was nielsen harry nielsen and and um just just glorious people you know even steve miller the i uh the um that pop writer who wrote great things you know i still remember great songs from those days like baker street um and was that the one that went i forget which song that was but uh you know just wonderful inventive shapes and profiles uh i just love those i didn't listen to a lot of theater to answer your question um in fact by the time by the time i was really getting into uh what the music that was going on around that time my mother really didn't um um like to have music in the house um at all she was writing books by then and nothing wrong with it but she you know, if the music sort of started to leak out of your room she would um, come in and kind of make you turn it down because she couldn't concentrate. You know, music was important to her. And, and if she was trying to write words on a completely different subject or whatever, she she couldn't concentrate. So we didn't have music in the house very much. It was sort of like the Von Trapp household before Maria. And how did you decide to write lyrics as well as music? Rather than Out of necessity. I mean, who wants to? And nobody wants to write lyrics, but... but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I venture, but uh, um, you, you kind of have to because there's no one around or um, that silly and, and you know, uh, to, to do it. So I just started and um, it's been a lifelong um, adult education course for me to continue to try to get better at it. Um, you know, there's nothing. Um, it's uh, very satisfying. <clears throat> to have done it, to have written the lyric, it's it's sometimes it's a great panic and um and quite depressing to be in the middle of writing a lyric because they don't start out so great and sometimes they end mediocre. <laughs> but you know, it's it's a beautiful thing to be trying to take a finite language, which is what English is compared to music, which is infinite relatively, um, and say I love you. Um, well by contextualizing it differently uh, and so yeah I mean I I love the challenge of, of lyric writing and I love great lyricists I read you know I really do as I say I've, I've music has always been a blessing for me to, I just sort of you know I, I listen tons of music all the time but uh you know, just sort of ambiently or, you know, or I, or I go to it. But in terms of lyrics, I really open up those books and really I I analyze what other people have done. Um, I admire them. I'm a fairly strict lyricist in terms of true rhymes and stuff. 
I, I do believe in that because it's, uh, it's a way of sort of being a cinematographer for the mind. I mean, for the mind of your, of your listener, of your audience. I mean, lyrics are cinematography of thoughts and rhyming and, and scansion and, and prosody and, you know, enjambment and all those fun things are part of the uh, cinematographic, you know, they're they're part of the you know the uh, the toolkit. And I know you have mentioned that vowels are sort of a big part of what you look for in writing lyrics, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes. Um, so vowels uh, have meaning. I think sometimes about when we first got big color screens on our computers, this is before your time, but it was revelatory for, for me anyway. Uh, I would sit there and just let it cycle through. It's 16.7 million colors. I think that was when it, it first got great. I was like, how could there be so many colors? But of course there are because there are the colors we know of and all the colors in between. And, um, and each one has its own emotional value. Um, vowels are like that to me um, in the service of a word or a thought. Um, the physics of making sound, of singing efficiently, um, of singing beautifully, um, and trying to write um, for that um, is exciting just on a physical level. There's <laughs> something that, uh, that moves us, um, even when um, just based on the vowel, I think. Uh, you know, I mean, for instance, I'll do it my way. As, as, as the many people who've sung that, as they get to that long note on my, um, they shape the I vowel and it runs across the top of their mouth. And um, as, a, as a lovely bonus, vibrato often speeds up if you're traveling, um, traveling a vowel in that way. Um, toward the end of the vowel travel, your, your vibrato just kind of starts to get a little quicker. It's thrilling, you know, just on a physical level. Right. Uh, so uh, I like to try to um, engage in that gamesmanship uh, when I'm writing lyrics to make sure the vowel suits the thought and that the vowel suits the singer. And once you do know who will be singing the song in a particular show or who you'll be working with, do you like to adjust what you've written based on them? No, absolutely. Not just adjust, but sometimes generate. And in the case of uh, Days of Wine and Roses, I really wrote it for Kelly, um, knowing what no, knowing what she was good at, which is everything, but, uh, but also um, what she would enjoy um, or, or be moved by, and, you know, and not, you know, I, I never have an, you know, exactly accurate read on that, but I have my, my, um, instincts about it. Um, and, um, you know, because if, just as if something moves me, you know, when I'm writing it, if it strikes me as, as a, as a, as a penetrating <clears throat> moment in a song, I, hope and expect that it will have a similar effect on the audience in general, that I have to trust my own um, personal experience of the music that I'm making um, uh, and trust that it will be a decent, although not perfectly accurate, but a decent indicator of what um, the ultimate audience will feel. Uh, I, I also think that if something feels good in my throat and to me as a, as kind of an amateur singer, it's going to feel it's going to feel good to Kelly or Brian, Darcy James. Right. Those two things, you know, they're, they're, it's all kind of the same. You have to trust the, the specific being the universal or the personal being the universal, whatever they say. And I'd love to ask about your early work on Song and Dance with John Malcherry. Oh, well, that was just, you know, being in the trenches as an intern, an unpaid person. I mean, there was no getting paid in those days and no discussion of it either. And not, you know, it's not like, Oh, when I grew up, I had to walk eight miles to school barefoot, you know? Um, no, I mean, I got to be the assistant to the conductor on a major Broadway show. Um, Bernie that Peters and the, the, the Dombois, uh, um, dancing siblings. And, um, it, it was an amazing, uh, thing to be that close to, 
um, to something being made, just like I had been when I was a kid. I have an assistant now, um, Danny Seligman, who's brilliant and goes to Marymount. And um, he, he um, it's just the proximity to it all. You can't, you can't really teach um, rabid interest, you know, like he has that for the theater. Um, I had that. And you're just a sponge, you know, you're just watching everything and making lots of mistakes. I mean, I, I got rather scolded um, more than once just for just doing things you just don't, you don't do. You have to be extremely careful about um, people's um, work space, the, the artists who are performing, you know, and even the conductor, John, John Nacheri was the conductor. And uh, I also marked his scores. I, um, I did all kinds of chores for him. And I learned a lot doing that. You know, that's how, that's how I learned most of what I know. And how did the idea for Floyd Collins first come about? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, well, we were given a commission by the American Music Theater Festival, which is, I'm, I'm afraid, no longer with us, but it's gone the way of the, the great awk, as Craig Lucas likes to say, the dodo. Um, and uh, they commissioned me having seen, oh, they saw a Christmas carol, sort of an operatic Christmas carol that I wrote Um Tina Landau directed. Um, it was um, at Trinity Rep in Providence and uh, Providence, Rhode Island. And they saw that and they they wanted to commission um, a new piece from us. So we um, we put our heads together and and I at the time was interested in the plague. I mean, you know, I, I certainly haven't changed very much. I thought that would be really theatrical, you know, like. 1348 and everyone's scrofulous covered in boobos you know whatever um that seemed good to me but she brought in this idea um um death watch carnival um man trapped in cave media circus ensues or something like that in a book and i said let's do that she's like are you sure it's like that's the one and i just sort of felt it instinctively um uh, you know he was he's underground i can make whatever music i want for him down there and when when we have scenes that are above ground, I have a fun departure point, you know, Barron County, Kentucky in 1925, whatever people were singing and whatever the sort of larger sensibilities were, I could uh, use as a jumping off point. And I felt strongly for him emotionally and 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 metaphysically, I thought this, the show had a lot of potential. And how much research do you like to do when you're working on a show, either set in a specific time period or with a real story behind it? Well, it's by far the most fun part of my job because I like to do, I like to get into realms that that are unfamiliar to me uh, and to know them fairly well. Um, and so for Floyd, I drove down there. Floyd Collins, I, I drove down to Barron County. I I hung around there for about 10 days um, and I had an apple on the porch with Floyd's cousin, a nice older woman who was very nice to me. Um, there was a lot of local um, sort of friction around just Crystal Cave where the, the cave that Floyd did discover and, and, and he did open up for tourism just didn't didn't do very well because it wasn't close enough to the main road and the man who owned that and i think had displayed floyd's body um this is a long time ago but um or his father had or they they owned the cave or something he was still bummed because you know the, the body had been taken and properly buried only a year before i got there this is something like 1991 so i was 26 Sorry if I'm rambling here, but um, I went down there and just basically rummaged around and got um, interviews with anyone who would talk to me. Um, and I sort of fibbed my way into Crystal Cave, which was part of the National Park by then. And as it turns out, also part of the Great Mammoth Cave system. Um, 
which probably goes by a more technical name. But yeah, so I said, look, I'm, I work for National Geographic. Can I go into Crystal Cave? Because they, and they said, well, we'll give you 45 minutes. I mean, this isn't scheduled and we really don't know who you are, but, um, and I somehow got in there and they gave me 45 minutes to the minute. And I took uh, just a very careful notes. And those are the exact lyrics of, of a, of an, a song slash aria that's in a Floyd Collins um, uh, called It Moves. And uh, uh, that that's uh, on the record. And, um, and it was just the notes that I took when I was in there. Uh, in that space, it's uh, extremely compelling. I mean, it's a very strange physical environment uh, to be in, and it, it it conjures and invokes a lot of questions. A lot of questions that came up in in the show. And how did you determine what would be sort of the musical style for that show, combining the country western sound with? Well, you know, I <clears throat> I decided to learn guitar on that show. I thought what better incentive you know so uh the first song i wrote for that show uh on guitar was the ballad of floyd collins and which has like five chords i mean it's uh it, I, uh the proof being that i can still play it and uh um but i progressed sort of quickly um to the point where uh, maybe a year or two later or maybe three i was i wrote lucky um, which has like 90 chords. And um, I just started to really feel comfortable on the guitar, just experimenting with all different kinds of things, different ways of playing it, different ways of treating it like a percussion instrument, a lot of uh, tuning changes. Um, and I think it is healthy for me to to pick up new instruments um, on a fairly regular basis. I mean, uh, you know, I play chromatic harmonica and I play a Renaissance bassoon called a Curdle just because I have them and I just use them on my demos. And and if you're playing them, you kind of want to get a little better or better enough. And um, so, you know, it's, you know, I, I play a lot of things not very well, like a lot of composers. And I think it's very good for the work because you're free. You know, you're not all hoity-toity about technique. You don't even know what you're doing, you know. And when do you decide to orchestrate your work versus sort of working with a separate orchestrator? It really comes down to time. And also at that age, I didn't have the confidence. I thought, well, I don't know how to orchestrate. It's such a long word. <laughs> um, and I, and I, I happily say that I, I still don't really, except I do it anyway. And um, there are a lot of people to catch you if you fall. And I like to work... Um, with another orchestrator as I go. On Floyd, it was the wonderful Bruce Coffin who did a, a beautiful, inventive job. And uh, on um, on subsequent shows, generally I would orchestrate with someone. Um, on Days of Wine and Roses, it's, it, it is I and, um, um, and Jamie Lawrence, who's a fantastic uh, musician and who I've been working with in music since I was 18. So that's 41 years. Wow. And Jamie's done a brilliant job on on uh, Days of Wine and Roses. So we, we orchestrated it together. I think really what I provide is a lot of counterpoint, a lot of uh, story-based insight that um, is maybe what I have the advantage of being able to do uh, just because I'm coming from very the, the very inside of the story. So my orchestrations serve um, sometimes unpredictably or unexpectedly, um, some of the <clears throat> some of the dramatic goals in a way that um, uh, Jamie can't uh, because he's not there. Because I orchestrate as I write the song, I do that all at the same time. And uh, on some songs, though, that require a lot of real technique, orchestrational technique. I mean, Jamie just took it away. Um, we have a song in uh, Days of Wine and Roses called Evaness, as in a champagne bubble, just going. Um, and uh, he took that song and just did ingenious, wonderful, technically brilliant things with it. He's, he's you know, he orchestrates for the Tonys. He, um, he, I think, conducts the Tonys. He's won Emmys and he's just, he knows exactly what he's doing and all kinds of ways that I don't have a clue. And so we make a good, 
a good team. And the other reason I work with an orchestrator is that as you get into previews and things change, sometimes things get rewritten or length endings get lengthened or 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 you know keys need to be um, uh, altered just for reasons that come up. Um, you know, I don't have the time at that point to orchestrate because I'm like I'm redoing a lyric or or whatever it may be. Right. And what makes an ideal librettist for you to collaborate with, whether it's Tina Landau or Craig Lucas? And how do you like to approach that? Well, they have to be entirely agreeable and do whatever I say. Obviously, that <laughs> comes first. Uh, no, no. I mean, um, the the most fun thing about this collaborative art form that you and I are obsessed with, um, if I may, if I may ascribe those, yes. that energy to you, um, is that it... Uh, that the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts that you know you go into a to a writing session i'd go into a session with craig and um with one set of sort of sort of infertile thoughts and and uh, out the other side of that meeting uh craig and i together would have bounced a lot of ideas around um and and come up with something way better than than I came in with that maybe either of us came in with. It is a beautiful uh, thing about the theater. It's it's the thing that I think has to be most carefully preserved um, in the formative stages and the generative stages of making theater when it's being created from whole cloth. Um, when you get further down the line, um, uh, it becomes more of a technical exercise this joke isn't working should we cut this i think we need a little bit more here because there's a costume change those things are also fun to deal with but the generative time being you know up at craig's house in putnam valley in his writing room with a cup of tea and a feeling of safety a feeling of um a complementary abilities and mutual respect uh is 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 a, the most beautiful part of it all, right? And you mentioned that the sort of generative process of making a show takes usually a long time for you. And why do you think that is that you sort of like to spend a long time on that? I mean, why is it taking me so long to write? That <laughs> I, I, I um, well, you know, I think anyone who knows me or has worked um, with me uh, or even. Um, my assistant, who's around a lot, or they can see me throwing a lot of things out. I mean, I, I throw not just days and days of work every three days or two days or every other day. It's just not, that's not going to go in. But I had to, I had to try it. Uh, it was an instinct I had. I had to, I had to do it, and, and I had to, I had to discover that it wasn't going to work. Um, and uh, that's that's a big part of why it takes me a long time. I I reject a lot of, you know, in the in the watch industry, there's there's a what they call a porcelain dial, and uh, and they fire about a hundred dials for porcelain dials for porcelain dialed watches, and only one out of a hundred really makes it through. Um, and I think that's a a noble and not wasteful. Um, standard uh and that i try to hold myself to um and i have to always acknowledge when i say that that i'm i'm blessed with enough financial resources from my grandfather to be able to take time um and work that way and also to be able to choose the unlikely subjects i mean i'm you know i'm batting a thousand with the guy who dies in a cave and the the you know the the girl who's has terrible head trauma and gets married anyway and um, and then, and then this cheery family romp, uh, Days of Wanted Roses. But, you know, I think theater is very, um, beguiling even, you know, no matter what, if it's, if it's supposed to be sung, then I, I try to give it a, um, a good, a good shot. And, and, uh, I'm in a position where I can choose those subjects. Um, you know, if someone in my position doesn't, then. Because I can. Who who can? I mean, you know, uh, I understand um, the theater's commercial venture, and I, I try to sort of straddle a line and do the best I can to um, to, in, to 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 make something compelling and 
intriguing for audiences, but uh, I'm not very good at um, standard spectacle razzmatazz, although um, I would like to be. And I, as I get older, um, rapidly, I, uh, I'm very uh, determined to write more simply. You know, the, the more I know, the, the, the less I need to write in terms of the complexity of what I'm doing. And that may be considered a complete, uh, uh, you know, hogwash when people come to see Days of Wonder Roses because it has a lot of complexity in it. But there are other scores that are finished that are that are sort of circling the airport. Uh, um, and they are simpler or more family oriented or more propulsive or more pop um, oriented. Simple is is hard. Yeah. And when you are writing for characters in some sort of altered mental state, be it alcoholism in Days of Wine and Roses or the injury in Light in the Piazza, how do you approach that from sort of a musical or lyrical perspective? Well, um, I don't approach anything from anywhere but um, what I connect to in terms of the humanity um, or, or the uh, who that um, person feels like to me, how I identify with her, with, with Clara and the light in the piazza. I just, I identified with somebody who has enormous um, romantic ambition. And that applies to all the characters in that show. Uh, there are four couples and they're all on that, that continuum uh, somewhere of, of wanting um, a, connect, a real connection, wanting love, to having had it and lost it, to never having had it, et cetera. Everyone's on there. And so my hope was that everyone in the audience will be on that continuum as well. And, and I am as a human being. And so I just wrote from, and on any given day, you know, I guess you and I are, we're all on that continuum and in different places on it in terms of how we feel about it, um, what the, how our heart is, is ringing itself out, you know, um, over certain things, you know, those things, I identify with, and so that gives me energy to to write into them. Right. And with both Light in the Piazza and Days of Wine and Roses, what was the process of sort of transferring them to Broadway like? And I don't know if that required any expansion. Well, there was, there was the, in the case of Light in the Piazza, um, there was the, the lovely and luxurious expansion of the orchestra from, I think, what we had in... Chicago, which I believe was five. Um, it was five at the Intamon in Seattle, and then maybe it grew a little bit for Chicago, like seven. And I think it was going to be nine at Lincoln Center, but it just sounded sort of piddly and small in the Vivian Beaumont. So <clears throat> Andre Bishop and his munificent, uh, you know, loveliness, uh, you know, somehow got us six more strings, which really turned it into what... It should have been, which was an unapologetic, um, romantic sound for a for a, a love story um, and a story about love that's not tied up in a bow. But as it isn't tied up in a bow, as it ends with lots of ellipses and 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 question marks, um, which is uh, something that appeals to me, and uh, you know, in storytelling, we do need the solidity and reliability and the assurance of a big romantic. A string based sound for for piazza for instance you know those that concurrency that tension between those two things uh is healthy right so in days of one rose we got two more instruments I, I asked for three but um you know it's very important to keep something uh, in a reasonable budget and so kevin McCollum agreed to two more instruments so we were six players at the atlantic theater and we are eight players um on broadway and i think uh because of Jamie Lawrence's great work, Kim Grigsby's terrific work as as musical director, her, her incredibly great work, and and a, an amazing band. Uh, it sounds like a lot more than than eight. And I don't know if you've had a chance to hear the the cast recording. Yes. But that was only that was only six, and it's you know it really sounds like a lot a lot more than that. Yes, it does. It does. It's a great recording. You know, when you when you move into Broadway, you get certain things that you just sort of you have to fill a larger house, which is not which doesn't mean that you want to be 
shouting or making things brighter or making notes higher or creating a lot of um, sort of uh, party chaos and and begging um, spectacle in the orchestration or in any way. You want the audience to always lean in for the detail, uh, at least for my shows. Um, but you do get certain things that help just fill the space. So in the case of Days of Wine and Roses, we got two more instruments. One was a uh, a trombone, who uh, a tenor trombone doubling on bass trombone, and it turns out we use the bass trombone more. Um, it provides a wonderful girth and menace and um, and warmth at the bottom of the chords, and sometimes convincing counterpoint that is um, sort of heroic and, and brassy. Um, and then <clears throat> we we all, we got one more reed player who doubles on a number of things. So we have two reeds; um, they both double. And one of the reed doubles includes bassoon, which is, of course, a very useful other kind of color, you know, a double reed. Um, but we have alto and tenor sax. We have uh, a flute and uh, bass, uh, a flute and alto flute, um, lots of B-flat clarinet. And, um, you know, and then you have all the mutes for the brass. And it's just a fun place to, it's a fun um, uh, set of, you know, carondash, you know, uh, coloring pencils it's just neat right and both days of wine roses and light of piazza to um center around a small kind of group of characters really two in days of wine roses and three in light in the piazza and is that sort of an intentional choice on your part do you prefer more intimate material in that way or um, I think it connects to something I said before. I'm, I um, I would love to get good at, try my hand at, somehow succeed at, um, you know, a larger ensemble cast um, uh, kind of a show construction. Certainly have ambition for that. Um, uh, but I think uh, I always have how expensive a show is going to be to produce um, in mind from the very, very beginning. Light the Piazza's first orchestration was three players. It was just a piano trio. Um, I think it was piano, um, uh, cello, and um, violin. But the title song, Light in the Piazza, was just for piano and viola for a dear friend's wedding. And then when I found a book, uh, or, or it was recommended to me, and uh, it seemed like an, uh, something to pursue, um, that became the uh, title song. Um, it was sort of within six months of each other, but... Um, Anyway, things start really small by design. Um, and so <clears throat> that often means uh, fewer central characters. But after all, um, as an audience, and you're a, about as an experienced an audience member as anyone I can think of, especially for your age, um, uh, you can't really care about too many people. Um, and I like to drive a story um, and, and, and sort of let a story be carried by fewer rather than more people just because i think audiences don't have that much uh attention and goodwill or certainly i don't uh when i see things i need to know who to focus on who to root for um days of wonder roses is a, is a fun um example in a way because um it really is for the most part a, a two-hander but when you think about what great um, sort of acrobatic and and possibly um, pretentious um, lengths you may have to go to to actually produce it with two people or with three, just the the parents and the daughter. Or um, it becomes um, a sort of mid to late sixties um, avant garde theater experiment. I mean, what 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 can you? It's it's constricting. So yes, my casts. And the central figures are few, um, but sometimes you do need um, the uh, the sort of um, the the things that make it plausible and, and and somewhat realistic within a gestural form, which gestural form, which is what theater is. And you mentioned that you wrote Days of Wine and Roses for Kelly O'Hara, but when that isn't the case, that it's for a specific performer, <laughs> what, is, what is the casting process like with someone like Victoria Clark in Light in the Piazza or Brian Darcy James or something like that? Well, Victoria Clark was really a fun um, example of how 
we you know our best laid plans i was convinced that i needed some sort of like sort of vanna white um sort of uh somewhat thin-lipped waspy um southern um bell to be margaret you know of a certain age like and uh but ted sperling wisely kept suggesting vicky they went to yale together um they were um long abiding friends and uh she kept coming in and and i saw quickly that <clears throat> theater is not made of of you know archetypes uh and not it's not you're not you don't have an automatic success on your hands just because you cast someone just as you've always envisioned them uh, and 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 vicky just inhabited the thing and suddenly the role was did look like her every frame in my imagination was filled with vicky clark because she so filled every frame of that character um and that's just what happens it's a wonderful thing and i think it contributed to her great success in the role she just just knew it inside and out she's she was from there um and i thought she was too young and you know i i, I didn't see the look i wanted you know uh, somebody who seemed more withholding physically, a little bit more uh, unapproachable and uh, frosty. And of course I was wrong and that's that's really good. <clears throat> right. And I talked to actually Kelly O'Hara and she mentioned that Stephen Sondheim sort of came in to see the light in the piazza and recommended that you kind of take it farther with the disorder of having the injury and everything and do you generally sort of seek out advice from other composers or what is no i don't think that did happen oh <laughs> um and i and i um i completely uh i'm happy to be wrong there but I, he gave me notes he came to see the show and it was <clears throat> after we were running I, mean, I think we were late in previews um and that note wasn't from i mean that that's not a note i recall from from anyone, my feeling about Clara was always that the the only way to make the story plausible and to keep it sort of hanging in that in that tightly calibrated um, place where the Italians don't really know what's going on, and the fear for Margaret was that they would find out um, while she picked her way through the very challenging ethical problem uh, of whether she should let her daughter go. That that my my feeling and also in casting Kelly uh, was that um, that that girl um, needs to um, in many ways be appear completely normal and then have certain behaviors like there's a song in Piazza called the Tyrant which is within a larger piece uh, called the Octet and um, and and uh, that that those moments of difficulty and neurodiversity, if you will, needed to come out very, pardon me, very succinctly and, and, uh, and, 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 and very clearly, vividly, but shouldn't be unnecessarily laced throughout. There should be lots of times when you're just looking at a, at a lovely young, young woman um, on her first trip to Europe um, who's fascinated and curious and all those things. So I'm not quite sure what that what that memory is of, of Kelly's book. Uh, there's probably, you know, I'm sure something like that happened, you know, at some point, but not with Steve. He came late in previews and he gave me really useful notes. And I'm I remember asking him, um, you know, well, you know, because we went to Shun Lee across the street from Lincoln Center, and uh, which is sort of a Jewish haunt for for those of us who love Chinese food and um you know it's right across from the theater so we go there and we were in a booth and it was really wonderful um very generous of him to give me that time come see the show and give me careful notes and he went on and on about the music which thrilled me beyond uh belief but finally um sort of uh inelegantly I I said well what do you think of the lyrics and he said Oh, the lyrics are great, you know, but that's not the point. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know to what uh, degree he really thought they were great. I don't think they're so great. You know, they they work, but whatever. Um, and uh, it was just uh, he had larger fish to fry as a um, as someone giving advice uh, on that project. Um, 
and it was also true of Floyd Collins. He was, I still have the back of the, um, the checkbook that Arthur Lawrence, his notes, I wrote them on the back of the checkbook and, and I have the piece of manuscript paper that I scrawled Steve's notes on. And um, I kept all those things because those are the people who um, I was really blessed to know. Right. And what was it like to talk to Arthur Lawrence about a show? I can imagine that he would have been probably very critical, just in general. The only show of mine that Arthur really liked, um, which is weird, was Myths and Hymns, mm. which Steve Steve didn't particularly like, and, and he was fine about it, but he just didn't get it. Okay. Arthur was much less constructive in his criticism. Um, I learned a ton from Arthur over the years. Not... Um, in his direct reactions to my work, he could be um, sort of uncollegial and, um, um, you know, he he confused honesty and anger. Mm. Uh, Arthur was, for all of his success, not very um, satisfied. Um, and that came out and squished out the sides as sort of as labile anger and strange... Uh, ungenerous behaviors you know he was 600 years older than I was and he knew that I was I idolized him um and he didn't always wield that power um that constructively although you know I really loved him uh, but Steve was a terrific teacher and very generous and did understand how to wield that power that pedagogical authority and another, maybe less generous collaborator was William Goldman on the Princess Bride. And well, he he wasn't the collaborator. He was a uh, he was the owner of the rights for something that he had written decades before, um, and only wanted to go to lunch. I'd come in with two new songs and want to talk about how we get into the songs or how to get out of them. He'd say, "Oh, that's your that's your department, you know, pal. Uh, that's your department." He would say, you know, jovially, let's go downstairs for lunch. You know, he had this one restaurant, fancy place on the Upper, upper East Side where he had his own table. And we'd go down there and not talk about the show anymore. So it was uh, a little bit like that. So the fact that that fell apart um, shouldn't have been such a surprise to me. Um, but the underlying material for Princess Bride was terrific. Yes, yes. And another show of yours that has yet to be produced is um, Millions, but hopefully we will it soon and how did that idea sort of come about to adapt my friend amy my friend amy van nostrand um um uh who is a dear dear friend and an actress um said she knew of this movie and it was just right after light in the piazza and she said maybe you should watch it maybe it could be a musical and uh i thought she was right and um um, I'm eternally grateful to her for that. So I watched it and I thought it was an undertold or lightly told story with um, one underwritten, one character in particular who was underwritten, the older brother, uh, Anthony. Um, and I knew it was a story um, for families and for uh, a more commercial life if I could do it right. And uh, it's... It, it came to be, it, it, um, it, that all happened while I was writing Days of Wine and Roses. Those two shows kind of got written at the same time. And what was it like to write for a child's voice in both shows? Well, it was wonderful because, um, well, I, do you, well, I don't know what you mean by both shows, but certain, oh, you mean in Days of Wine and Roses, I have a kid in the show. Yeah. Yes, of course. I forgot about that, dear girl. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, I, as as uh, mentioned, I was a boy soprano um, when I was a kid, and I have uh, great affection for that sound, for the purity of it. Um, boy or girl soprano, anyone young has a sort of unpretentious, uh, direct um, little fife, little pipe, you know, and uh, that's just as that can be just as uh, useful theatrically, I hope, as as uh, you know, writing for someone with a uh, you know, an adult technique. And uh, so it was just a pleasure and an occasional sort of sentimental <clears throat> touchstone. Um, there's a lot of music in Millions for the Boys. They carry the show. I haven't um, given them too much, but there's plenty for them to do. In Days of One and Roses, she has a few 
you know a few um, songs and and I hope that they really give the audience what they need and give that young actress what she needs. Um, um, but in both cases, it, th there's a certain sentimental touchstone for me just to to get to write for that sound. I can still feel what it felt like to sing as a boy soprano, as odd as that may seem. <clears throat> no, I, I do teach, I coach singing and things um, because of a kind of lifelong built-in um, physical memory of just, you know, singing what it feels like and uh, how to sing safely. Uh, so that also applies to writing for kids. Well, I would love to ask with um, both, I guess, Millions and Light in the Piazza and Days of Wine and Roses, there's a movie that it comes from. And what was your process like of working with that source material? Um, I, um, I've seen Days of Wine and Roses twice. Um, once when I was quite young and never forgot it and discussed it with Kelly. 22 years ago. Um, and then once again, when I was starting to write it, and at that time, my, the book writer was a wonderful screenwriter and playwright named John Logan. And I remember just <clears throat> both times the movie made me cry. Um, and with Light in the Piazza, I never saw the movie. I, I wouldn't out of superstition. I didn't want to be accused of taking something I didn't have the legal right to, or just to be accused of sort of mimicking or or just borrowing too much. And um, of course, when I finally did see Light in the it was about two years after we had opened on Broadway. I was doing a panel with the wonderful, now gone, Bernie Gersten. And uh, we watched the movie and then did this panel. I remember sort of just full of, of the self-recrimination because there were so many things in the movie to which we did have the rights that would have made our storytelling uh, possibly more elegant, at least mine, things I should have borrowed that I did have the right to borrow, you know, <clears throat> the, you know these superstitions about, you know, I don't want to look at the original. I With Light and the Piazza, I really, I read the book, I read the story um, once, basically, and took very heavy notes in the margins. I still have that copy because I want to be in the position when I'm writing a show the audience is in. If I know the underlying material too well, I begin to get all fancy and layered and, you know, things that the audience isn't going to care about or feel in that, in the experience of being told the story. I sort of want to be in their position. Right. And how did the idea first come to turn the movie you love, Days of Wine Roses, into a musical? Well, Kelly and I, as we both uh, talked about that movie when we were at Sundance working on like the piazza and uh i i think we were both really into it i think we both uh thought hey um and uh even though she was only 26 uh, i i knew she was going to be one of the most brilliant singers we've ever had in, in this field and already a really good actor and uh, looked just like lee remick and sounded like Teresa stratus and and um i think she was uh at least as enthusiastic about the idea as, as I was, but, you know, um, then 10 years went by and I, I think I felt like I was ready to attempt it um, and start writing it. Uh, and <clears throat> that was, I think the first song came out and I think got the rights in 2011. And the first song came out somewhere around then. So that was 12 years ago. Um, and uh, in, in the time that I, wrote Days of One of Those as I wrote, um, you know, Millions and half of two other shows. And, you know, a lot of other things happened. It's just, uh, as it happens, nothing um, could get on the boards. You know, this is a, a wonderful but frustrating field. Um, everyone's got a different schedule. Um, sometimes you're working with Scott Rudin, who gets excommunicated. Um, you know, just anything can happen. Right. And the very last question I'd love to ask you is, what has it been like sort of seeing the reception to Days of Wine Roses so far? And I imagine that it means a lot to a lot of people because of the subject matter. Um, I, I hope so, but we don't promote the show in that way particularly. I think we all have been touched by alcoholism. We all 
um, either um, have had our own addiction issues um, or know someone close to us who has. So there's that. It's, it's not something I ever banked on as a way to sell tickets. Um, um, and I think it can also work against us. Some people are rather put off by what they consider to be um, <clears throat> maybe too close to the bone or just uninteresting. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a big, there's, a, there's a lot of potential, uh, in, in days of wine and roses for, <clears throat> for that kind of identification, which is probably good. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I will be joined by playwright and librettist Craig Lucas, whose numerous credits include the plays Prelude to a Kiss, Prayer for My Enemy, Reckless, I Was Most Alive with You, and The Dying Gaul, as well as the books to the musicals The Light in the Piazza, An American in Paris, Amelie, and Paradise Square. In his previous career as an actor and singer, he appeared in the musicals On the 20th Century, Rex, Shenandoah, and Sweeney Todd in their original Broadway runs. You won't want to miss that episode, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening!